Okay. Here we uh, are. Here we are. We're back. We're back. I'm Scott. I'm Ollie. And, and this, this is, is Science in Between. Science in Between. And what episode is this? This is this is episode diggity diggity 17, 17. of our In Between podcast. Should I continue to identify which ones are prime numbers? I, I think I was thinking the same thing. It's probably a good idea just because our you know our audience went right there to it. We're back in the prime. This is our right. prime. Nice. Prime, prime uh, numbers. Dad joke. That's what how yeah, I roll. I got it. Yeah. It was good. It was solid. And so if you're joining us on our, our book club tour here, this is uh, chapter two of Brian Brown's book on uh, science in the city, culturally relevant STEM education. And uh, so I, I think- and, and just wait, if you're not- If you're not- You should go back and listen to the previous episode because yes. this will be chapter two. And last episode, uh, we talked about inter the introduction in chapter one, so you don't want to miss that scintillating content before you get into chapter two. You might get, you might get lost. You might get lost, and uh, I have to say that just just like I said last time, I think I'll probably say this every episode. I'm a fanboy, and Brian just he just does not disappoint. I just uh, find his stuff so accessible, and I you know he when I read. Uh, the chapter he sounds like somebody who's been in the classroom and that's the thing i it's so you know it's so great to hear somebody who's talking about really revolutionary reform-minded stuff right and in being somebody who's come from the classroom just like like me and like you you know and yep yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a, a cool and, starting and that point. He, yeah. And that he's got, um, he's really got kids in mind, right? So he's not, he's not doing this because it's an interesting academic subject for him to research, though it is for him, but he's doing it because he's trying to impact the way that kids get taught science. So I think that's, that's awesome. And I think the part with, for me is uh, if you're somebody who's been listening to our, our show, our podcast for a few weeks, uh, we, we, talked about IREs and IRFs a handful of episodes ago mm -hmm. and that comes up in in chapter two here where he talks about the difference between you know evaluating and I love the way he frames this right it's it's the what's in my head game right it's yeah. it's the it's the this is the game that science teachers play right it's like what's yeah. in my head do you guess know guess what's in my head and it is a great way of of framing the and I you know, it's funny because I was trying, I was teaching uh, a class this week and I was trying to get uh, the students to really think about something that they had engaged with. And I kind of felt like I was playing that game with them. And I'm just like, oh, uh, it's not a good look. No, it's not. No. Yeah. Well, yeah. So this, this chapter is called the cultural cost of organic language development. So he's really going after this idea that, um, of like he has a different take on what organic means uh, yeah. because he's really taking a critical eye on um, how we talk with kids, how we listen to kids and how we uh, set norms in our classroom about what is appropriate science talk and what is not appropriate science talk um, and, uh, and how powerful that is for including and excluding certain groups of kids. So, <clears throat> well, I, th I think what's what's great about this chapter is, as I think he takes, you know, a couple different perspectives on this, because I think that what he does is he he definitely takes the let's include as many populations of students into our classroom as possible. But I think that if he stopped there, we'd just be like, oh, OK, great. But what he does is he says 
this is our job as teachers. This is what, what, like, if we're going to do our job well, then we have to fundamentally think about how we do this job differently, right? Because our, our, our job is about helping students learn. And if we're not listening to them and understanding what they're saying and using language that's appropriate for them, then we're not doing our job and we're not doing it well and we're not doing right. it effectively. And I think right. that to me is, is sort of a, a take that he understands who his reader is and he understands what their role is and how motivated they are to do their job well. And I think that's what science teachers are motivated by, by trying to do their job well. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, he, he starts the chapter by saying, um, you know, talking about what a smart person might sound like so when, when you, you imagine in your head a smart person in your class saying something about science, like what is in your head when that happens? And then he deconstructs that to start, start to say, yeah, well, did the person have a lisp? Did they have an accent? Did they um, use non-standard forms of English? Did they, you know, what was in your head when, when you had this idea of a smart person saying something? And, he, you know, obviously he's doing this to help us understand how, um, fundamentally ingrained in us these ways of thinking about what good good answers are in science and not even just the IRE sort of good answers, but just answers that we think fit within what we consider to be scientifically normative language. And I think it's a, you know, it's a nice little, it's a nice little thought experiment to, to kick off this chapter. I, I, when he talks about that, I, I think one of the things I, I like about that is that w- as a, I'm, I'm a sports guy. I, I follow sports. I, uh, you know, I follow football and I'm, I'm in a fantasy football league and all that. Um, but he takes all of these different approaches to try to make, make his point. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about uh, a, a football player who, if, if you're not familiar, it's Jameis Winston, who was a, a football player and, and he was, he was, you know, led a comeback in a, you know, a college football game. And after the, the game, he, uh, he was interviewed and in this interview, they was asked about like how he motivated his players and what he said to his players, his teammates in, in the huddle. And so he goes off on sort of this, you know, pretty long description of what he was talking about in the huddle. And I guess at the time there was all these people who kind of, when they heard Jameis Winston talk about this, there's just like, what is he talking about? And really went after him on like Twitter and, and social media and, and, and so on and, and used him as like kind of the butt of a joke and saying, this is not what a, 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 a leader should sound like as if, you know, there's a one way for a leader to sound um, when ultimately it was around, like, was it effective? Like it was effective in motivating the players. And it was because ultimately he led this comeback. Um, but the, and he uses this as a, as a way to demonstrate the point that you're saying, Scott, is that what he, there's not one way for a leader to sound. There's not one way for a, a science student to sound. Um, and I think that's really good at demonstrating that. It's really good at demonstrating it from like, po- uh, like pop culture and from you know, things that other people may know about. Yeah, and I, and I think the thing that he does also in that is he makes it really clear that there's a racial component to this, right? Yeah. So that this isn't just that Jameis said this thing and was, you know, he's just come out of the game. He's, you know, probably jam full of adrenaline, like he's being interviewed. He's, he's, and so there's all that going on, but then, you know, the, the person that called him out was the, the coach's wife from the other team who was white. 
And um, there's, and then people came to his defense. I, I wouldn't even say defense, but certainly were supportive of him. Right. Um, and those were, you know, specifically um, Brian talks about LeBron James and Reggie Bush, you know, two black athletes. Um, and, you know, this idea of um, specifically that if it had been a different form of non-standard English that, that, that uh, James used, that he, if he had, spoken with a Southern accent is one of the examples or whatever, right? Or perhaps, and Brian doesn't say this, but maybe it's implicit, if Jameis was white, um, that the reaction to this might've been quite different. So it's really interesting to to see this example in light of the fundamental um, you know, issues around race that are built into this language stuff. So language is, is, is the important through through line here but it's grounded in this broader cultural context where race and ethnicity and all of these other factors gender play a play a significant role yeah and i think that using that example is a really good way for us as readers to connect to it whether it's football or whether it's something else and i think that seeing that ex example um, I mean, we don't have examples like what that looks like in classrooms because we don't, you know, we're not interviewing kids in classrooms or anything like that, or maybe we are, but I think it, what it does is it does a really good job of saying, okay, like there, there is this other way. There are lots of ways of, of talking and that we have to be open to that. We have to be mindful of that and, and, and not just in science, but in all areas, right? So, but specifically science. And I think that's powerful. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, and he's, you know, he he uses this to build, at least in part, uh, um, a, a way of considering science as learning a foreign language, right? That it really is, in some respects, a, a, an entirely different way to talk. And, you know, later on in the chapter, he talks about, you know, that you're not allowed to use personification. You're not, a, not supposed to use these sort of metaphor, like a lot of the language that we normally use in just conversation. You don't use that kind of talk in science. Like, the words mean something very specific. And we've talked about this before in on the podcast, right? That force, you know, for a physicist means something different. Energy means something different, like these terms, but they're mixed up with colloquial versions of those words. Right. And then there's a bunch of words that don't have colloquial meanings. And, you know, Brian talks about like mitosis and meiosis and, and he uses a bunch of examples from biology. I think that's his background, but, yeah. but there's like technical language also associated with science. So, and that's all mixed together in this new, so there's new words, there's old words being, or common words being used in very specific and unusual ways. And that's all built into this also um, sort of general structure of language that's very different than the ordinary way we talk um, to each other. So I think he's setting up this idea that we have to think about science, not as teaching of content, but of teaching a different language, a different way of talking uh, and, and listening and writing and all of those things. And I, I think that he doesn't just lend a critical eye to what's happening in science classrooms. I think what he's trying to do is also be empowering and say, because I, I, there's one part where he says, 
when teachers arrive in classrooms, they have a great deal of power in determining the norms of classroom discourse. And so what he's saying is, look, you set the standards in your classroom. You model the practices in your classroom. And so if you're going to be inviting, if you're going to teach science from the guess what's in my head, then you're really only saying there's two people that can talk, right? This is the, the, the great thing he talks about. He says, when you have that kind of discourse in your classroom, there are two people who are going to be able to talk, the teachers and the people who know the answer of what's in your head. And then the rest of the people are just like gonna sit on the sidelines. And yeah. so if that's the classroom discourse that you're modeling, if that's the kind of culture you're creating, then that's limiting the, the kind of discourse, the level of participation, the level of engagement in your classroom. And I think that right there is empowering. So it's not just like, hey, you're, you're all doing it wrong. It's like, well, here, this is a way of doing it differently. Yeah. But that, but that form of pedagogy, he actually says is antithetical to teaching. Like the idea that the only people that talk in class are people who have correct answers. Like how can you have a learning environment where that's the case? It doesn't make any sense at all. Right. But, but as you say, Ali, that's the thing, right. Is that we've set up schools this way that with the guess my head, IRE, IRF, whatever you want to call it. Right. The, there's the teacher who knows what the answer is. And then there's the kids that for some reason, a priori know the answer coming into class, either they did the homework or they have some, some other context in which they know this stuff because they, because they know it. Those are the only people talking. And then everybody else is just silently listening to the people who know the answers, say the answers out loud. Or the, the kids who are the, the, who know the words, but don't know what the words mean, right? And we're like, okay, what, what is this? Oh, it's a forest. And they say the forest and we're like, oh yeah, he knows. And he's just, he or she's just parroting that word that they really don't have a, a conceptual understanding of. Yeah, they're and this, just, they're yeah, guessing and what's this, in our head. Right, and this goes back to this question that we sort of talked about. Um, I don't remember what episode in the past, but some episode in the past, what, you know, when I was talking about um, the teachers at Park Forest Middle and how they let students develop their own language yeah. for energy concepts. And, you know, one of the questions that I think is, is um, both implicit and explicit in this chapter with Brian is... Um, what, you know, sort of what is the meaningful difference between um, the technical language and allowing kids to explain the same ideas with words that they actually understand? So he he has this example in the failure to, to be understood section where he talks about like kids describing stomata of a plant and, you know, air or oxygen moving in and out and, you know, sort of comparing a description that describes the phenomenon of what happens with plants um, and leaves specifically, not using it as technical language, and then sort of asking the question, so what, what is it that we, we benefit from by having kids know this technical language? Um, and I think it's a really good question because, um, you know, this technical language developed so that scientists could sort of unambiguously communicate with each other about research and about their own thinking about these organisms um, in the case of biology or concepts or whatever, right? So I think the idea, and again, we did talk about this, like what's, which is the important thing? Like the idea that they understand what's going on or that they have the very specific technical language for the pieces of that explanation. Um, and he, at the very least, troubles the idea that, um, that it's just about the technical language, right? Like it's, we just want kids to be able to say, oh, here's what mitosis is. Here's what meiosis is. Here's what stomata are, 
right? Because um, as you're saying, right, that can be a, um, uh, like it can, it can cover up misunderstandings. I can use those words and not know what they mean. But if I explain things in my, in my own words, you know that I know what those words mean and therefore you know whether I actually understand the concept or not. So I think this, this uh, sort of obsession with technical language is really interesting. And, and I, I'm impressed at the amount of biological terms you're dropping today. So oh, well, you, it's only because yeah. I recently read Brian's book and he's got a bunch of bio in there. So he, he does. Uh, and that's a, a little, it's, it's been, gosh, like 30 years since I've had a biology class. So it's yeah, kind of hard right. to you know, dig up some of that content knowledge. Right. And is it content knowledge? Oh, well, it's, it's syntax. It's, it's yeah, it's words that we know. Yeah. Mitosis, meiosis. That one always drives me bananas, but wow. but that's that's a story for another day. That's not that's neither here nor there today. So I think the the other great thing about this chapter, I think, is uh, and this is a this is somebody you turned me on to when when I had you in class like years ago was Jay Lemke. Mm. Jay Lemke makes an appearance in this, and if you're not familiar with who Jay Lemke is, he he's he's a big science talk guy. Right. I mean, that's a good way of describing him. Yeah. And and he's he has a, a he has a very famous book that he wrote about science talk, which is what Brian's talking about. Right. Here. And so I would say when when I read sci, I, I think the book might actually be. Is it science talk? It, like I think least, it's I think it's talking science. science and right. then it's got a colon and some stuff after it. I'm right. Sure. There's always a colon. Um, yeah. And so when I read either the chapter or a whole section of it in your uh, in your class, I just remember thinking like it was like eye opening to me. It was like, oh, there's a lot of things I, I need to change in how I create discourse in my classroom. And and he, Brian bringing that in to this chapter, I think, is is logical and also a really good review for me for, and for any other reader. And it's a really good introduction. Um, for somebody who may not have uh, come across Jay Lemke before, um, because I think it, what he, he's, he's doing is he, he's saying, OK, there are ways we can talk about science and, and, and there are, it's how we've been modeled. But then there's other ways that we can be doing it in, in ways that are more inclusive, more inviting, more opening in terms of trying to uncover the stuff that the students are thinking and also helping us to be able to like assess that and you know inform our practices and i think that's a like a really great thing to bring in in this section and it's a really good way to again come back to what the teacher's role is what the teacher's goal is and i think again coming back to we as science teachers want to do right by our kids but what does that look like and so I think we have this model on our head of what science looks like because of our own experiences as science, as usually successful science students. Right. Um, and then that's what we try to perpetuate in our classroom. But there are other models that work with more, more students, other students, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. Well, and, and to, you know, to talk about that a little more, right. The, the idea of the apprenticeship of observation. So that's a, that's another, you know, being esoteric here and continuing yeah. to, to do the, do the bring, bringing in, you know, the external references, but this idea that, um, you know, you, you go to school for a long time and that establishes for you norms that are, um, that are what school is and what it means to learn and what it means to, um, to, 
to be a good student. And, and Brian's leaning into all that and, and saying, we have to be thoughtful because that is what happens in schools is we define what it means to be a good science learner, a good science thinker, a good scientist. Um, <clears throat> and we do that by defining the way that people talk. Um, and so that, that is tricky. And, and Jay Lemke's book does talk about this. Um, I mean, hit the, the, the whole title is talking science, language, learning, and values. Um, and I think that the values part is he does talk about, uh, you know, the sort of values that are communicated and the power that is inherent in science teaching and teaching in general, right? Teaching is a political act. You are, you are engaged with these students in a way that isn't neutral. And if you don't recognize that, um, that can be, you know, dangerous, especially for your kids. Right. And so I think, I think, uh, Jay was pointing that out in his book. And I think, um, uh, you know, Brian is, is, as I say, leaning into that and drawing on that to make his argument as well, which is, um, yeah, this, these inherent power issues that are built into the way that we have people talk about science, um, has significant impact, especially on kids that are already marginalized. So, okay, I'm going to kind of go off on a tangent for a second here. So, I have a, I have a colleague who is listening to our uh, our podcast. She's just a, a loyal listener. What can I say? But she is not in the science community. She's actually from uh, the art community, and but she finds a lot of value in the things we've talked about um, because she sees the discourse we're talking about in science is very familiar or um, resonant with her um, because, you know, that's kind of the thing that they do in art as well. Um, and then it makes me wonder whether this type of discourse we're talking about is actually not uh, just unique to science and unique to art, but maybe to is is in other fields too. Maybe it's in, is it in all content areas. I mean, we're ultimately trying to develop um, there's discourse in every content area, right? I mean, there's in some way we're learning to talk, you know, you know, English. We're taught learning to talk in, you know, social studies courses and math, and you know, mm -hmm. and maybe the thing that Brian's talking about here in terms of these normative ways of 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 talking in content areas that the problem with that is much more universal than just something that happens in science. Maybe it's something that happens across the boards. And so when we're talking science in the city. Maybe it's discourse in the city. Maybe it's discourse across the boards. Yeah, I think, I think probably the, what I would, well, my, my take on that is it's yes. And right. Which is, yeah, it is true um, across the board, right? Like you're saying, like, it's not like learning to talk about art is uh, on some level not fundamentally the same as learning to talk about science like you're you're being enculturated into a set of practices in school sure. about what it means to be an artist how you talk about art how you talk about color how you talk about composition how you talk about you know perspective right um and all that stuff um and at the same time, I think it's also different in the sense that the epistemic foundation of these fields is very different. And one of the challenges that maybe is unique to science is, is its internal sense of objectivity and not being value laden, right? Like I, most art 
people I would think would say, absolutely, art is a value-laden field. Like you like things or don't like things or whatever. It doesn't mean you can't, that there isn't a technical side to it. But, um, but I think scientists and science teachers often try to think of their field as not having values, that it's, that it's just empirical facts. And, right. um, and I think that is a real challenge um, when it comes to thinking about this language that we're so committed to, right? That we, that there are, you know, like lab reports have a structure, hypotheses have a structure, um, conclusions have a structure. And within that, you have to use the right kind of words if you're going to express science ideas. You have to say mitosis. You have to say meiosis. You have to say stomata. Otherwise, you're not, um, you know, sort of doing science. I'm going to say that that probably was the most esoteric 60 seconds of you. our entire podcast life. Yeah. And I loved every minute of it. It was <laughs> completely joyous. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. Um, it started with epistemic and yeah, went epistemic, from there yeah. and went from there and joyous. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That's well, what I'm here for. That's what you are here for. And it's, it, yeah. it's wonderful. It's fantastic. But I think that, that I think you're right. It's, it's the yes, but because I think that each, each community, each, you know, content area we're we're enculturating our students into what it means to be an artist, what it means to be a scientist, what it means to be, uh, you know, a mathematician and all that. Um, but then are we also creating barriers for them, uh, for students as well by saying, you know, this is the discourse that's acceptable. And I think that's where Brian's coming in and saying there's multiple ways of, of participating in the discourse community without less necessarily saying, you know, offering the normative language as being like the, the gatekeeping. Um, yeah. Because ultimately, if we're going to do this job and do it well, if we're going to, you know, help students develop scientific understanding, it's not just about knowing the words, it's knowing a, a, like how to think and how to express that. And we can teach that without like, just dropping words on people and playing the guess what's in my head game. Right. But it does. I mean, there is a fundamental sort of um, underlying learning theory piece to this, right? Which is the way that you and I talk about you know, and, and we just did talk about um, learning in science classrooms or learning in art classrooms or learning in any classroom is that it's enculturation into a set yeah. of practices, right? Well, that's a perspective, right? It is a perspective. Um, and it is not a perspective shared by everybody. Many people do see teaching as the, the, um, the transmission or the, yeah. the relocation of knowledge from one site to another. Um, and, and just the idea that that's what knowledge is like knowledge is this abstracted set of things that just need to be moved from one head to another. Uh, and, and I think that using that as a model has a big impact on your ability to think about the kind of things that, that Brian's trying to point out. Right. Yeah, it, it's what's what's wild is I'm I'm reading a bunch of different stuff, you know, as of late, and it's it's you're a Renaissance lot, man. You're Renaissance I am man. not just a Renaissance man, but you're I am just a Renaissance. Uh, man. I am not, but no. With um, what I was ah uh, gosh, was was it in Brian's chapter we talked about the 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 banking model? Because I think that's no, so it's not. 
So I'm, I'm also reading a book by Richard Milner uh, where it says uh, it's about start where you are, but don't stay there. And I might have mentioned this in another class. It's about understanding diversity, opportunity gaps, and teaching in today's classroom. So it's one of the books actually I have uh, my students read and I'm rereading it. And so I'm rereading it as I'm reading Brian's book. And so there's a lot of overlap. And, and so when you talk about this sort of like transmission model, way that Richard Milner talks about it is this banking model, like that we're making deposits in students brains um and that's the that's an approach to teaching that i think would be like anathema to you and i right that's mm -hmm. not how we see um learning it's not that it's it's about like and i think that the way you describe it is this uh enculturation and development of of thought and practices and apprenticing them into you know what that uh what the profession or what the you know content area is i think is is a better w way to capture that yeah, well, and it's it's you know back to maybe the first or second episode like that. That's the way the NGSS talks about it, yep. and the reason the NGSS talks about it um, that way is because it's grounded in that same model, which the framework in science education is also grounded in that same model, which is a sociocultural model of learning, which says that practices and content are inextricably linked to each other. You so these this three D learning thing is not just a fancy way to articulate um what what science should be doing or what kids should be learning in science it's actually a representation of how science happens and trying to articulate that in a way that teachers can take advantage of it and and think about how to structure their schools that way right because because you can't separate like you can't separate those things and if you do then then the content is is inert it's useless it's meaningless it's just this stuff that you memorize for school and then you go out in the world and you're like okay well i did that stuff for school but that i don't have to remember that because it's not part of real life it's not part of doing stuff yeah so coming back to to brian i think that what what he presents is this 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 organic model of developing language within the in the classroom, letting the students and 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 the and the teacher, you know, as they examine phenomena in the classroom, to like let it organically develop. And he he has some challenges with that word because it has a science term, you know, it's a science term and it means something in science. Um, but he's taking it more from the standpoint of letting the students and that that discourse community sort of create that language. And, and so I think one of the things I, I, I where he kind of drives that point home is at the end of this chapter. And I think, you know, I, I, I like reading sections of the book just because I think it, it, it makes the point. And this is what he, he says. These are the last like two sentences of this chapter that I think are really meaningful. And I think he drives this point home. He says, allowing language to organically develop generates a dichotomous dilemma. And one, not developing a language learning approach prevents teachers from being understood. In another way, it limits teachers' ability to understand the knowledge that students bring with them to the learning environment. So he's like, if you don't do this as a teacher, then you're not going to be understood because you're going to be talking one language and the students are going to be talking another. But if you co-develop that, let that develop in your classroom, then it's a better chance of you being understood. And it's a better chance for the students to understand what you're trying to say and then you can assess what they're thinking too and so mm -hmm. it like creates that sort of like discourse community organically is is you know the approach he's taking yeah I, well I, I, well i'm going to push back a little here because i think he's saying actually that we can't do it organically that that's not the way that we should be doing it so um 
So I think what he's saying, so he says that right in the sentence before, we cannot allow science language to be seen as organic. Um, the, this point of this chapter is not to criticize or discourage the use of science dialect, but rather to highlight how a culture-free or quote-unquote organic approach to understanding language puts students in jeopardy. So, so what I think he's actually saying is that we talk about it like science talk is organic, like it's just normal. I mean, he's using, he, he's saying these folks are using organic differently, but, but that it's just like, it's just the way that we talk about science. There's not, there's nothing, you know, uh, special, not, not special, but, um, but he's saying when we, that there's no cult, we, we tend to say, as we were just talking about that, um, science folks tend to think of this as, as natural, right. That it's just the way that you talk about science It is the science is talked about this way, as opposed to saying science is talked about this way because of the culture in which science developed. And if we don't recognize that, then we significantly disadvantage. And not only can we not communicate to our students, but our students can't communicate to us. And that puts us in a really, uh, between a rock and a hard place as teachers, right? Because if your job is to help students learn and they can't understand you and you can't understand them, then you're in, you're in, a, in a bad place. See, I, 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 I see how you're reading it. And I, I guess the way I, was, I, I saw it was that he was trying to, you know, encourage us to, you know, use the language that students would be more comfortable with using language that the students would be. Uh, but you're saying from the standpoint of, you know, with not attending to the language that we use as science teachers, right? And saying that we're just going to use that language uh, colloquially, like this is how we talk um, without like really helping the students understand how we talk without like really attending to it. So he's using it like the organic, not from its development in the classroom, but um, without like attending to it, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Is that? Yeah. Organic as in natural, like this right. is just the natural way to talk. And, and he's saying that that's a problem, right? To sure. think of, of science um, talk as natural or organic um, that it, that it isn't. And, and it is, not culture free, it's culture laden. And, right. you know, to, to Jay Lemke's point, it's value laden. And, um, and so when we when we delude ourselves that we're just teaching this content, and it's just, you know, mitosis is mitosis, it's not like there's nothing, there's no value in that and teaching kids that um, and un not understanding that that mitosis developed within a culture of science, which has its own discourse practices that have developed historically. And that history is, um, you know, is, can be problematic. I mean, I'm sitting in my office and over my shoulder is a picture of Richard Feynman and he, he's a great physicist. He did amazing work, but he's also got a, you know, a, he's got some problems, right? He was a misogynist. He, he had some, uh, see, so he had some bad qualities. Sure. So, that doesn't make him a bad human being. It makes him a typical human being. But I think, um, but I think understanding that, that the way, like he's a perfect example, he invented a whole vernacular for describing quantum electrodynamics, right? Like that is his, one of his claims to fame. And, um, but he also systematically uh, dismissed and excluded women in, in work that he did. So, so that culture of science is all mixed together. And I think Brian's trying to say, you have to understand that. Like you, it doesn't mean that you have to make 
race a central part or class or gender a central part of what you talk about in science, though some people would argue that you should. But Brian's just saying, you can't just say that science is neutral, organic language. It's not. It's culture-laden and it's value-laden. And, and as teachers, we have to recognize that so that we can, we can communicate with our kids. All right. Deep thoughts. Deep thoughts. Yeah. And I keep coming back to it. It's just, uh, it's unique that you and I, as two older white guys in science are the ones discussing this book, but I think that we're the, we're, we're some of the intended audience. So I think that. Yeah, for sure we are. Yeah. And, uh, and I think hopefully, um, a lot of other, uh, you know, folks like us, especially those that are in classrooms are going to read this book and think about it. Um, cause I think, uh, you know, we, we, we are in a moment, um, where we're trying to really think we're trying to grapple with how we think about, um, lots of aspects of our society. And there are people who, you know, I, I, science teachers that I know locally or other places that have said, like, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I want to think through this because I think it's important. Um, and I know that it's not just, I have to hang pictures of black scientists in my, in my yeah. classroom and call it done. Like, so they're trying to really um, say, how do we take this up in a way that doesn't turn my class into just a big discussion about race and gender, because uh, that's not my intent. I don't want to abandon teaching science. Um, but I also want to understand that, that science is in a cultural context and it is, does have values. And if I'm not recognizing those things, then, then I, I'm not supporting my students the way I could be. And, uh, and, and in some cases maybe actively doing, uh, harm to some of my kids. So I think, I think we're in a moment when, when Brian's book makes a lot of sense and where a lot of people really should be grappling with these issues. Well, that might be a good place for us to stop today. So, okay. And, yeah. and, and bring us joy. And after, bring us joy. This, yeah. I mean, yeah. Cause it, you know, it, it's, it's like I said, empowering, but also really heavy. You know? Yeah. It's daunting. It is. It's daunting. And it, and you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of be honest about myself here. Like when I go back and, and think about the time I was a high school teacher, like it doesn't make me um, feel great about that. Right. Like in the moment, I thought I was an okay science teacher. Um, but uh, you know, I've, I've had a, a lot of time to think about that um, since. And um, certainly I would do things a lot differently now if I was in a classroom and when I am in a classroom, I do things a lot differently. Um, but I look back and say, eh, you know, disappointing. Yeah, um, I think we we all do that, right? Yeah. We all go back. I, I mean, I do it even now, like looking at the things I, I do on a day-to-day -day basis and think about how I could do it differently. Because, I mean, I think that's the the goal is always to improve upon what we do. Yeah. And But I think it just gives us a, an additional lens to examine that practice and Great. also, you know, try to empower us to, you know, make sure that we make our classrooms inclusive spaces for yeah. different voices, for different folks. And yep. yeah. And like you say, Brian gives us a way to think about how to do that. Right. So he's not just like throwing, throwing, uh, you know, he's, he's not just throwing shade. He's genuinely saying like, yeah, I understand that folks out there may not be aware of this issue. And I'm trying to help you through that, not only to see the issue, but to give you 
tools to deal with it. So we'll be getting to that in later chapters, but I think it's, you know, he's not just as, as you repeatedly have said, I think Holly, like he's not, he's not a downer here. He's really trying to be empowering. He's trying to, to recognize that there is a problem, but it's not insurmountable if we're willing to, to engage with it. Right. Cause if you, if we were, you know, going to read seven chapters of a book where it was just like, Hey, you're doing it wrong. Hey, you know, look at what you're like the negative impact you're having on students and, and all that. Like it wouldn't, what would be the point? It's like, it just make you feel bad. Well, he can make you feel bad. Like you, you and I are both feeling bad about like the things we do, but it's also giving you some tools to, to do it better and to think about it better in, in right. better ways. And, and I think that's the, the part that I think resonates with me the most. Yeah. All right, All Joyce. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> Joyce, let's... I'm going to go, I'm going to go first. Whoa, time. look at that. Yeah, I'm coming yeah. out hot. Look at you. Because I, I don't know. I'm worried. I don't know if you're going to try and, you know, probably not. Probably, probably not. Um, so, so the thing that brings me joy this week is the Mandalorian. So I, I, the new season just started and my family hadn't watched it. I binge watched it myself. I was home uh, by myself a weekend when it had just come out or recently come out. And um, so I just sat in a, in my living room and watched the whole thing myself like a nerd. Um, But then this weekend, my family and I watched it together uh, in preparation for the new season and they enjoyed it. So, um, so yeah, it's on Disney plus. I probably don't need to say much about it. Baby Yoda. What else do you need to know? No spoilers, Um, no spoilers, Scott. I don't think that's a spoiler anymore. Like, no, no, but I'm saying like anything else that has happened in season two, you don't want to spoil it. No, I'm not spoiling any, I'm not even going to spoil season one because there are probably people who haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it, it's well worth it. Even if you're not a star Wars nerd, I think it, um, it hangs together pretty well. And, and it's, uh, it's, you know, again, sort of like my Ted Lasso thing, it's, there's some violence in there. I'll be honest. Uh, but it's, but it, it's pretty feel goody, uh, overall. So I, I strongly I, recommend. I don't know if you need to be a star Wars fan to like, I would say if you, no. if you're a fan, I think the the best descriptor of what it's like is like, a, it's an old Western. Yeah. It's a serial Western. That's what it's like. It's like he, you know, the Mandalorian's a lone gunman who, you know, yeah. Yeah. You get, you get the, the relation. So yeah. Yeah, it's a very Clint Eastwoody sort of vibe to it, where sure. you know he doesn't say much, uh, and he, yeah, it's but it's it's uh, yeah, it's a nice one. So yeah. what do you got? What do you got, Ollie? So uh, I'm a I, I I have a Sonos radio system at my house, so this is one of the things that I've I've always wanted, and and I would say probably like the last um, maybe about like three months or so. Um, Sonos has started doing their own radio stations. So in to try to compete with Spotify and, you know, Sirius XM and all the other things that are out there, Pandora. So they started doing their own like radio stations. And for the most part, they were, you know, decent and, and, but they released a station uh, called the Encyclopedia of Brittany. And uh, it's Brittany Howard, who is oh, not, the, not, not Brittany Spears, I'm not Brittany Spears. Okay. It's Brittany Howard. And uh, this is guess what's guess what's in my head. Do you know who Brittany Howard is? She's no, the lead singer for Alabama Shakes. The, the uh, so oh. so she's yeah, of course, of course, of course. So Brittany Howard is just awesome. And I was a fan of hers before, like with Alabama Shakes and her own solo album. And I gave it a listen. And I will tell you that the Encyclopedia of Britney, which is the name of the station, is 
awesome. It covers so much territory and there's so many things. There's so many like really sweet little gems that you get shared in there. She tells little stories about like her family. And, you know, I was listening to this with my grandma, you know, making, you know, apple pie or whatever. And then, so it's these little intros that go into the songs that you hear. It's awesome. And there are so many stations, there's so many times where I like, okay, who is this? And I got to write down and find out who this uh, artist is. And, you know, there's a, you know, one artist, like I, di I didn't know there was a, a Zambia rock movement from the seventies. Right. But there was a song that came out that was called Sunday morning by this band called Amans or Amanzi. And I listened to it on uh, this, the song on the encyclopedia of Brittany. And I went looking for it and it was awesome. It was awesome. And so I would say if you have Sonos Radio at your house, check out the Encyclopedia Brittany because it is a joy. That's a nice one. I do not, I have a Sonos. I don't think I've used Sonos radio stations though. So I'll have yeah, to Yeah, well, I will tell that. you it's one of those ones you can leave on for a long period of time. And it's just like, you know, Oh, here's a Prince song. Oh, here's some, you know, Bobby Darren. Oh, here's some, it's like all over the place. And it just, you know, yeah, just great listening. So awesome. encyclopedia, Brittany and the Mandalorian. Right. Those are our joys this week. Those are our joys this week. And this has been uh, science in between. And, and we'll see you next time. In, in between. between. Yeah. Yeah.